past four, excuse me, for the past four weeks, we have been looking at a topic that I believe is an important one, particularly in our day and age, entitled the importance, the importance of the church. And we talked about in the first message the importance of the church to God. God created us. He called us. He brought us together and made this into the people he has us to be. Then we looked at the importance of the church, the development of our faith, because the church in so many ways impacts our faith development. I don't know about you, but I don't know where I'd be without local churches that have invested in my life and have taught. Uh, I've heard uh, sermons and Bible studies and fellowship groups and encouragement in so many different ways. In fact, I like the, the, the word that Cyprian said in the third century. I shared it with you then. No one can have... No one has God as father who does not also have God as mother, as church as mother. The importance of the church in nurturing us is, 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 is high on the list. Then we looked at the importance of the church to us corporately, how God has called us out to be together, to serve and to minister and to, to make a difference in the world. And then last week we looked at that uh, end of Matthew's account of the gospel where we saw the importance of the church to the world because God has us here for a purpose, and that purpose is primarily to share the gospel. That is our call. That is our task. That is our command, even as we would read in the end of Matthew. Now, as we end this series, we're going to turn to what is, I believe, one of the more difficult passages in all of the New Testament, probably all of the Bible. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we come to a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. There's some evidence that this may have actually been his second letter, that there was another letter before, and you'll see that in the passage this morning if you're watching, that he had written them once before, and then now, and that letter was not um, around any longer. But this letter was included in the scriptures, and we have to deal with this. Here was a church that was established in what had to be one of the most ungodly, immoral, filthy places on the planet at the time. Corinth was a city that was a port city uh, in uh, what is today southern Greece, and it had been destroyed in the war between the Romans and the Greek city-states at around 146 B.C. You're going, man, he's going historical today. Hang in there with me. It was destroyed completely. It was left fallow for almost a 100 years before a guy named Julius Caesar commanded a city be rebuilt on that place because of its strategic importance and its importance as a port in shipping around the world of that day. And so in 44 BC, Julius Caesar said, build a city, and they built a city. And into this place comes Paul in Acts, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news. And as a direct result of his work there, of proclaiming Christ as Savior, as Jesus, as Messiah, there were people called, ecclesiad, as we've been talking about in the series. They were called out, and then they were formed into a local congregation that you and I would call a church. And they came together in that place. But they still lived in an extremely pagan culture. The culture was disgusting. In fact, if you were to walk into Corinth of the first century, the three biggest buildings in town were pagan temples to the goddess um, Dionysius. I believe that's right. I got it in my notes somewhere. I missed it here. Anyway, they, 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 they tolerated immorality. They tolerated sinfulness. They celebrated perversity in every form you can imagine. And yet in that community was a church, a called out group of people that were struggling with an issue. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Because I want to talk to you this morning about the importance of the church in effectiveness. Because that's what they're dealing with in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 5. As we dive into this chapter, we're going to find a startling revelation. And it's a passage that, uh, to be honest with you, I have avoided now for some 30-something years. I have never, ever, ever preached on this text. Because I wasn't sure I was mature enough to deal with this. And I'm not sure up until recently if I really grasped what he was talking about here. But we're going to give it a shot this morning because I think there's something we need to see, especially in our culture, as our culture continues to move further and further and further away from God. We in the church are going to have to make some choices about how we're going to be effective. And so I want you to see this passage in context, and then we're going to try to bring it into our day as best we can. So first of all, there are reports of diminished effectiveness. Paul has heard a report from a trusted uh, source, and so he writes this letter, and he comes to the issue of what we call chapter 5. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. That's pretty bad stuff. For a man has his father's wife. I'm aware of small ears in the room, so we're going to be very conscious and and, and careful here, but I need you to see this. Verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So here's what's going on. There is a startling issue. It's an issue that is so disturbing that even the pagans in the most pagan place on pagan planet Earth are not even willing to do. It's going on in the church. And it's right there at the end of verse 1. A man has his father's wife. You're going, I wonder what that means. That means exactly what you think it means. It's not his mother, it's his father's wife. Wow. I have to tell you again, I have avoided this passage for years because I felt uh, incompetent to address what's here. But hopefully as I've grown in God's grace, and by the way, I've seen how these kind of actions and it's a bigger issue than just that one issue, have affected churches and have negatively impacted the effectiveness of churches in the kingdom of God, that I believe we need to deal with it and talk about it. We're not talking merely here about sexual sin, though it is the issue at Corinth. And it is an issue in our day-to-day, if you haven't noticed. But I suspect the issue here is much broader than one sin. You're going, so is he going to let us slide on that issue? No, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the reality that every church has at some time or another will struggle with sins that continue to exist. Hang in there with me. Let me ask you this. Would we be more uncomfortable if Paul had says, well, y'all have got a gossip in your church and we need to deal with that issue? Would have been more comfortable with that? Or maybe we'd be more comfortable and say, well, you've got a really bad liar in your church. We'd be more comfortable with that. But see, the word have your father's wife really gets us kind of in that weird area that we're not comfortable with, right? We don't like talking about those kinds of things. We don't want to deal with that. But, but I want you to grasp, just because their issue was this does not mean that's the only issue that this can happen in. What seems to be going on is within the broader culture of the, of the, the, the city of Corinth, these kinds of activities were sexual activities were not only accepted but encouraged. And in fact, what seems to have happened is the culture had splattered on the church. You, you ever poured something and get splattered on your shirt? 
my mother, uh, whenever we'd go out to lunch, uh, dinner with her, she always joked, she goes, I can't eat it without getting something on my shirt. Uh, and it would always splatter on her chest. You know, she'd always end up with a spot right here. And she was always, oh, I can't believe it. That's splattering. The, the, the culture can splatter on us in the church. And the phrase that's, that Paul uses here, actually reported, it carries the meaning of this. Something commonly seen in the culture, something commonly known to be occurring. In fact, the actions of this one individual within the fellowship are so egregious that the pagans go, man, that's weird. That shouldn't happen. And to add insult to injury, the people of the fellowship, the called out ones, the ecclesia, were actually celebrating the way he lived. They're going, oh, we accept him and we love him and we're going to tolerate him and we're great with him. Paul's word for this man for the first time in this chapter is this, right there at the end of verse 2. Let him who has done this be what? Removed. Now, some of you go, that's just too harsh. Patrick, can we just kind of remove that verse and ignore that and move on? Because that's just not tolerant. That's not loving. That's not compassionate. Here, i, I got to help you understand what's going on here. Because if we don't understand the struggle, his commands and, and encouragement to what to do are not going to make sense to us. So follow with me. He is not talking about when we sin. I, I would love for those of you who have never sinned to raise your hand and tell us how it's going for you. Because we don't have anybody in the room that that's the issue. All of us sin. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is when a person sins and commits to a lifestyle, a pattern, a direction of sin that he or she will not turn from. Do you see the distinction? Please catch that because if you don't see that distinction in this verse, you're going to struggle with this because you're going to say, that's not loving, that's not compassion. Well, she lied once, so we're going to kick her out of the church. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who say, I don't care what God's word says. I don't care what the scriptures teach. I don't care what God would have me to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what you think. I don't care what impact it has on the church. That's the struggle in this verse. And once I grasped that thought, I was like, ah, this makes more sense now. Because I've always read it as going, well, anybody that sins, we need to kick it. That's, that's not what he's talking about. He's dealing with a church that's having an ongoing struggle in the church. So here's, here's the thought this led me to. First of all is this. Sin tolerated among God's people diminishes the effectiveness of the church. You know, we've bought so deeply into the idea of individual action and free will. We often think that what we do doesn't matter to anybody else. What we do don't, don't, what we do don't affect nobody. Okay? What we do doesn't affect anyone. Let me make it very clear. Please hear me on this. We're not talking about single sin. We're talking about a commitment to a pathway of sinfulness. Every sin can be forgiven. Every sin can be forgiven. There's not one sin that you can commit that God will not forget if you ask him to forgive you. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from what? Some unrighteousness? No, all unrighteousness. All of them can be sinned. What we're talking about here is a person who is a follower of Jesus who commits to a rut of sin and says, I'm sticking in it and I don't care what happens. That's the issue here. Y'all with me? That issue we need to understand because it's different than a person who sometimes sins. 
who occasionally makes a, a mistake that they need to forgive, ask forgiveness. We're talking about a person who says, I am going to do it, I'm going to stick with it, and I'm not going to repent of it. Whenever a church tolerates a person who professes to be a follower of Jesus with that kind of lifestyle and lives in opposition to the truth of God's word, that church will lose its effectiveness as a church. We'll lose the joy, we'll lose peace, we'll lose passion for the things of God, and we'll lose the blessings of life that God has for us. What Paul has heard about is an issue at the Corinthian church that says, i got to get on to you. In fact, 1 Corinthians is about the most confrontational letter Paul writes in, in all of the letters he wrote in the New Testament. But his word for them is this, you don't have to stay that way. You don't have to continue to tolerate that. You don't need to stay there. You need to address this. You need to deal with this. You need to come back and come back to the Lord. In fact, James gives them a path forward. James is a different text in a different context, but I want you to notice he dealt with some of the same things. James 5.16 tells us this. Therefore, do what? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There's power in confession. And when we start living as our actions don't have impact on anyone, we've missed the communal aspect of the church and we are headed down a road that we're going to lose the effectiveness of a church and we become little more than a museum. When anyone in a local fellowship commits not a solitary sin but a decision to live in opposition to God's ways, the whole fellowship is affected. Now, in some churches, it's sexual sin. Corinth, that was the issue. In others, it could be pervasive gossip. In others, it may be anger and bitterness. In others, it may be a lack of forgiveness. There's all kinds of ongoing lifestyle sins that can damage a church. For Corinth, it happened to be this one. Other churches struggle with other issues. The big idea, though, is when a pattern of sinfulness sets in, the church has to deal with it because the church will be affected by it. So what do we do with this? So Paul lays out the big issue we got an issue of diminished effectiveness because we're tolerating a sin, a commitment to sin by a believer. So he gives us, I believe, four steps to deal with it. Number one is this. It's number two on your list, but it's number one in the, in the actions. Is refuse to make room for sin. Look at verses three to five. For though absent in the body, Paul says, because I'm not there, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present and with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You're going, oh my, he just turned up the heat. Yes, he did. Y'all are going, this is stuff, this is not real. We don't deal with this stuff anymore, do we? I believe we do. Paul's laid out the big idea here and the big issue now. Now he says, here's how you're going to honor God. This is what you need to do. The first step is so radical, our ears want to go, I must be misunderstanding that. that. He can't be talking about He's not saying it. No, he's not really. But friends, I don't think there's any way around what Paul says here. And, and, and thus, my uncomfortableness as your pastor in addressing this passage. Because while Paul wasn't there physically in Corinth, he was there in spirit. And he had already said, here's what you need to do. And the word that really trips us up, can I tell you? It's that word in the third line on the screen right now. It says, pronounced what? Judgment. We don't like that word. You know why? We don't like to be judged. And we don't think we should ever judge anybody. But I want you to understand there's something big going on in this passage that we are missing in the modern church. He's judging not the world. Who's he judging? A brother in Christ. 
you're going, wait, 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 wait. We, we are not supposed to judge anybody. I think Paul would disagree with that. What he tells the church is exactly what they needed to do. Look at verse 4 again. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, that's what we do on Sundays. They did it in other times of the week. When we are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present and with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Wow. Ouch. What's the Greek say on that? Exactly what the English says. We don't have to reinterpret this. The instruction, by the way, it's the second time in the text he said this, is to remove the person who is committed to sinful ways from the fellowship. Now, there's a pathway you get to this in another passage over in Matthew. We don't have time for that this morning, I would refer you to that. His instruction for the church, for the called out ones, for those he dearly loved, those whom, by the way, he had been the one to bring the gospel to the community. You know, Paul was the one who brought the gospel the first time there. He loved these folks. He cared for them. He spent time with them. He preached to them. He ministered to them. He loved them. He says, if this man will not respond and repent, turn him over to Satan. Why? It's better for him to die in the flesh so that he might be saved for the day of the Lord. Wow. Are y'all with me on the uncomfortableness of the passage? I am. This is tough stuff. I've had a few of y'all this the last couple of weeks, I've encouraged you to read this passage ahead of time so y'all can kind of check me out. So y'all be sure and send me a note after the service and say, Patrick, you missed it. Or maybe I think you got, maybe you missed this. You could have said this too. But the application here is different in a different cultural setting, but the action is the same. What's the action? Love. We're supposed to love each other enough to hold each other accountable. You're going, but that's not what the world says. Listen, I am not of this world. I am of the Spirit in Christ. We have to love each other enough to hold each other accountable. I want you to know I am grateful for the nation we live in. We have great freedoms in our country. We can worship freely. But there's a a stream of practice in American Christianity that I believe is very dangerous to the effectiveness of the church. Many of us live as if our actions have absolutely no effect on anybody else. That is absolutely, uncategorically, absolutely, positively not true. Whether it's sexual sin, gossip, slander, insolence, envy, conceit, deceit, strife, ruthfulness, or foolishness, when we tolerate a life pattern outside of the standards of holy God, we damage not only us, but the effectiveness of the local church. We need to hold each other accountable. Our enemy would love nothing more than to get you and me as members of the body of Christ to start living even more poorly than the pagans of the world. That's what happened at Corinth. And what Paul was doing was calling the church at Corinth to love each other enough to hold each other accountable. That's what he told the church at Galatia when he said this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Watch yourself, lest you too be tempted. We need to hold each other accountable and encourage each other to live the ways of the Lord. Because letting sin become a disgusting pattern in the lives of the beloved damages the work of the kingdom of God. So first he says, don't make room for sin. Second, you've got to reject the old ways. What are the old ways? I, you know, Paul, Paul was, a, was, a, was an interesting cat. 
He was Jewish. Y'all, y'all know that, right? He was Jewish. He was Jewish of the Jews of the Jews. He was probably on the road to being one of the high priests at some point, okay? His name was not Paul originally. It was Saul. He's going down a road of Judaism. When he got saved, do you know what he became? A Jew who was a Christian, a Christ follower. He never quit Judaism. He hung on to it because that's who he was. That was part of his cultural identity. It was also part of his heritage. So look, look what he does here is like, Paul, do you know who you're writing to? You're writing to a bunch of pagans that don't have, don't, don't have no, don't have no. I've been around youth all week. Ain't got no, that's better. All right. No uh, uh, Jewish background. But look what he says to him. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity sincerity and truth. The second corrective step they needed to take was this. Forget the old ways. Or to put it in a Jewish frame of mind, cleanse out the leaven. The Passover, when it would come in a Jewish family, they would go through their homes and they would clean out any leaven, any yeast, so that it was completely gone. Think of it as a spring cleaning on steroids, okay? I mean, they would go and wash every pot, every cup, everything. I remember I was in, in Jerusalem a few years ago uh, when, when um, Passover was about to happen. And, and we were staying at this hotel, and they had these amazing rolls and bread and, and desserts and meats and all this stuff. And we walk in one morning, and everything's on paper plates, and all the good stuff was gone, and it was cold, I'm going, what in the world? It was Passover. They were getting ready for Passover. They were cleaning out the leaven. Very Jewish activity, he tells them to do here. But I think there's, there's more to, in the, to, the, to, the, to, to it than that. He's carrying the thought of the current situation of the body of believers, the called out ones. He says, you need to clean it out. Speaking to a group of people who came out of pagan backgrounds, they might have missed a reference, but I think they had enough Jewish uh, background focal, folks in their church to understand And it was this, if you tolerate a little sin, eventually that sin has the potential to develop into a much more invading sin into every aspect of your body. You got to clean it out. It is entirely possible that the man who had his father's wife was the only one doing it. Well, it's just one guy. What's it matter? Because when we tolerate sin in one, I'm not talking about occasional sin. I'm talking about ongoing sin. Then others begin to say, well, they're doing that. It must be okay to do this. There's no consequence. Who matters? Does it matter? If the church at Corinth ignored this blatant, sinful lifestyle, then sin would become tolerated. Friends, when we go from tolerating something, usually the next step along the road is that we accept that something. And if we continue down that road, we end up celebrating that. So we move from tolerating sin to accepting the sin, to celebrating the sin. Sin is not something we want to celebrate ever. Leads me to this. Whenever we tolerate a little sin, you can watch for a sin explosion. Just watch for it. It's coming. We live in a day where sin is not only tolerated, but often celebrated. We've been fed the lie that God himself created us to live in sin. I was born this way, some will say. Can I tell you something? God created you with a design to be perfect and holy and to worship God. 
not to dwell in sin, not to wallow in sin, not to celebrate sin. God intended us to be sinless, yet we chose to rebel. We as humans choose a pathway of rebellion in opposition to God, and we choose it every day whether we're going to live for him or for us. When you look at the church in our day, what you find in many quarters is this. The standards continue to be lowered. The tolerance of sinfulness continues to increase. And at the same time, the effectiveness of the church is declining. It's as if we've forgotten whose we are and who we are. I'm reminded of what Paul said to this very same church when he wrote them in the second letter he wrote, which was probably the third letter, but it doesn't matter. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old passes away. Behold, the new has come. See, whether you live in an utterly pagan culture like Corinth or a thoroughly secular one like ours, the call to be set apart and different remains. We must reject the old ways especially when it's a commitment to an old way that's not godly. Third action step is in verses 9 and 10. He says, I put it this way, respond appropriately to all. Now, what do you mean by that? Aren't we supposed to treat everybody the same? I'm going to lay out a, a case that we actually treat some people different. Listen to what the text says. He says, I wrote to you in my letter. That's the reference to the previous letter that we don't have a copy of. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Stop right there a second. They were to refuse to make room for sin, to reject the old ways. They were now called to respond appropriately. Now, what does that mean? How many of you have ever heard the verse, judge not lest you be... Judged. That means what? We can never judge anybody. That's not what Paul would say. You're going, what do you mean? You mean you get to judge people? Yes, I get to judge people. Hang on. It's not a judgmental thing, guys. Don't go down that road. What Paul is talking about here is not being judgmental. Rather, he's calling the church at Corinth to hold one another accountable to the Lord. There seems to be this letter written before where he says, I gave you instruction, but you missed it. I wrote to you a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And apparently the church at Corinth said, great, we'll just get together with our people and we'll never be outside the the four walls of wherever they met and we'll just be together. And we'll love each other and we'll tolerate each other and we'll be together and we'll love each other and that'll be it. The problem is that's not what he meant. He says not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy Swindlers, adulterers, because you've got to be out there with the world. He's telling us this, I think, is there's two different standards for how we treat people. You're going, huh? I thought we were supposed to judge. I, I'm not talking about judging. I'm talking about a standard. He says, how easy is it, uh, is it for us to ignore the sinful world in an effort to rise above them? We fall into this Christian ghetto where we hang out with Christians and around Christians and we listen to Christian music and we talk to Christians and we talk Christian and we speak Christianese. Nobody else can understand us. And all the while, all around us, the world is going rapidly to hell. We sink into sinfulness even within the church. What Paul's referring to is the reality the people of the world live the way they do because they're lost. The way I have said this for coming up on three decades is this. Lost people act like lost people because they're what? Lost. But the corollary to that is this. Saved people act like saved people because they're saved. 
We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to hold each other to a higher standard, to a higher calling. And yet we still have to be out there with the world. Well, I'm going to get some of their sin on me. How about you take some Jesus with you instead? So we respond to different people differently. Paul is telling the church at Corinth, this guy in your church who has his father's wife, ew, hold him to a higher standard. And if he won't hold to that standard, treat him as a lost man because that's how he's acted. This leads me to this. Y'all are thinking, he'll never finish by noon. No, I won't. God places us where we are to show Jesus to various kinds of people. You're going, I thought people were people. No, people are various. People are variable. Everybody's different. Y'all are all different. Some of you more so than others. Come on, y'all. It's a heavy topic. We're going to have a little humor in there. The church at Corinth lived in an extremely pagan culture. The biggest buildings in town were dedicated to pagan worship within the religion of Aphrodite. That's the word I was looking for earlier. And in these facilities, all kinds of perverse things happened in the name of worship. That affected the standards of the culture. You know, when sick stuff's happening on one side of town, it affects everybody. Do you know that? They were affected by the moral standards of the culture and the community at large. That meant even those who followed Jesus were being affected in various ways. But that in no way allowed them to lower the standards among the believers. Just because the culture says it's okay, just because the legal standard says it's okay, does not mean the biblical standard gets thrown out the window. I'm old enough at this point to have lived through several decisions in our nation that says we're okay with that sin as a nation. But can I tell you something, my friends, in the church, we must never be okay with those. You say, well, that's not loving. Oh, I think it's totally loving to hold a brother or sister to a higher standard and at the same time love those in the world that are living their less than best life now. God has placed us here for a purpose, for a reason. There's a different standard we live to. And this is where judging, determining comes into play. As a child of God, I must never expect a lost person to live with a moral perfection perfection to which Jesus calls us. They don't have the perspective. They don't have the presence of the Holy Spirit. They don't know Jesus. How do you expect a lost man to act like a saved man? You can't. But doggone it, we better expect each other, Christian, to live like Christians and to live up to that high standard. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to God, to your Father who's in heaven. So I relate to a lost person quite differently than I do to you as a saved person. If you're a saved person, I expect you to live up to God's standard. You know why? Not because I'm a pastor, because I'm your brother. You're a child of God, live up to the standard. You say, well, I haven't arrived yet. Me either. I'm a work in progress, just like you are, right? But we should be making progress. But a lost person, let me tell you, we went to camp this week. We took some lost persons with us to camp. Amen, Cindy? Amen. And you know what they acted like? Shock. They acted like lost kids. Amazing. Does that mean we lowered the standard for what we were going to do? No, we said, no, you still have to go to worship. You still have to come and have lunch with us. You still have to take a shower. Lord, please take a shower, you know. Okay? You with me? But... 
I don't expect a lost kid to act like a Christian kid. Why? They don't have the ability yet. I don't expect a lost adult to act like a Christian. They don't have the ability. But listen, those of you who've trusted Christ and are part of this fellowship, I expect y'all to live to a high standard, not because I'm your pastor, but because I'm your brother. And you better expect me to live the same way. I think the most disappointed I've ever been in life is when I've met people who profess to be followers of Jesus, but they live like pagans. I think that's why this verse has become more and more clear to me as I've aged and dealt with people like some of you in the church. You go, are you done? Almost. One last challenge he gives to him in verse 11 and 12 and 13. We need to revere, and I changed the word this week, so the screen got wrong because I did it a week ago because I was gone this week. Write the word revere, right choices. To revere the right choices. Verse 11, he says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's the third time he says that, by the way. Paul finally calls on them to make the right choices and to lift those choices up and to revere those choices in life and to make some tough choices. He tells them point blank, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Ladies, that includes y'all. That's generic enough that it includes all of us, okay? Brother, sister, brethren, beloved, okay? If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a viler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Wow. What he's, he's, not, he's not saying a brother who falls into sin should be cast out. What he's saying is this. If one who professes to be a follower of Jesus and commits to a path of wickedness, there must be consequences. God's going to judge those outside the body of Christ, but we have the responsibility to love each other enough and to love each other so deeply that we don't let sin go unchallenged. You might be thinking, uh, he was actually counseling them to withdraw fellowship from such a person if they won't repent. Um, He actually says it three different times in 13 verses. Uh, Yeah, that's what he's saying. Withdrawing fellowship from a person who professes to follow Jesus but is unrepentant, Paul says is the most loving thing we can do. You say, well, in our day, that doesn't work. They just go down the street. They go down to the Second Baptist Church, or they go to the Third Baptist Church, or they go to Calvary Baptist Church, or they go to whatever. In Corinth, they had the church. I can't tell you I fully understand how it applies in this culture, but we've got to figure it out. And it has to be done with humility and with grace and to draw the line, not where we draw the line, but where Jesus draws the line. Because in doing so, we show true love. Not only for the brother or sister, but for the church. Let me tell you, I've been around this town almost uh, seven and a half years. I've heard this statement in some form or fashion when I talk to folks about, won't you come to, come to worship, come to First Baptist? 
And they go, oh, well, that's where all the, and I'll give you a blank, and you can put it in what you want to. That's where they go. I don't want to be around those kind of people. Wow. By the way, that's not a compliment, in case you didn't catch that, when I hear that. See, how we live out there matters. How we conduct business matters. How we present ourselves in social media matters. And we're all going to make mistakes. But we sure don't want to choose a lifestyle like that. And it leads me to one final thought. Choose to lift one another up in encouragement and accountability. I am firmly convinced the days of being a casual follower of Jesus are rapidly coming to a close. It used to be everybody put their name, uh, everybody claimed to be a Christian, and everybody got their name on the church roll, and we'd sing the song when we all get to heaven, and it kind of felt right. But friends, the days are rapidly approaching, if they haven't already come, where the divide between those who follow Jesus and those who pay lip service is going to be quite pronounced. And for those who continue to claim the name Jesus follower, called out one, Christian, we're going to have to live that marked different life from those who don't. And by the way, it's not going to be real difficult to do because the culture is sinking quicker and quicker and quicker into filthiness. If you're trying to follow Jesus, you're going to stand out. You know, I've traveled to a few different countries where committed Christians are the vast minority. And I actually believe that's going to be a good thing as we move that direction. Because instead of carrying unholy baggage like the church at Corinth maybe had in that one guy, we're going to find ourselves committed to Christ, serious about Christ, loving each other, holding each other to that high standard, but also being willing to go out into the community and share the love of Jesus because we'll have really gotten it. When that happens, we'll be able to say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live uh, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we start living this way, the church will make an impact on the community and will be more effective and lives will be changed for him. So what do you do with this? You listen to the Lord. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. That's the place to start. I would suspect for many of you, you profess to know Jesus. I was reminded of a story this week. I shared it with the students on uh, the last night of camp. When I was uh, 15, I was in the hospital for a month. I had uh, a hip had gotten out of place and they had to pin it and put it back in place and held me in traction. And then I developed blood clots. So I had a month as a 15-year-old who already had his driver's license and had my first car stuck in a hospital. That was miserable. Can I tell you that? Oh, do y'all remember the old days? There were three TV, there were three TV channels, and you know what was on during the daytime? Soap operas. Y'all know. Apparently, y'all know what those are. Okay. Oh, it was awful. But I remember our new youth pastor came to see me in the hospital. Oh, and it was a Seventh-day Adventist hospital, so there was no meat. I lost 30 pounds that month. Anyway, our youth pastor had started in uh, September, and he came to see me. It was like February. And he starts talking to me. 
and shares with me. And he starts talking to me about how I could know Jesus and how I could get saved. Now, I had trusted Christ at seven, and I had been at church every time the door was open. Not because I wanted to, but because my parents made me. Thank you, Mom and Dad. Thanks, Dad. Um, And he continued to share the gospel with me. And I said, Rick, what are you talking about? I am a Christian. And I couldn't get away from him because I was in traction, you know. He said, so why aren't you living like one? That's a great question, isn't it? And he challenged me to start reading two verses. And I'm gonna, I'll give them to y'all. I gave them to the kids this week. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. And to pray those verses. Rick was the guy who challenged me to pray scripture the first time in my life. And says, you need to pray those verses and let God speak to you. And in my mind, I said, you can just get out of here. I'd kick you out if I could, but I can't. But as I laid there in that hospital room, I got the Bible that was laying on there on the table. I don't know, probably a Gideon Bible. Thank you, Gideons. And I opened it to that verse, and it was in King James, because that's all we had back then. And I read it, and I was like, oh. And then I began to pray it, and God began to show me things that I had never confessed. And he began to do a work in my heart. A follower of Jesus is happiest when we live every moment unto the Lord. You want to find joy in life? Don't go do what you want to do. Go do what God has for you. You'll find it. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the opportunity to be together in worship. Lord, we we, we took a few extra minutes today, but I pray that you would use those minutes and not let them go to waste. I thank you for a congregation that's indulgent occasionally to, to hang in there with me. And I pray, God, that you would show us what decisions we need to make, whether it's to trust you with salvation for the very first time. Our Father, maybe just to say, God, I've been doing my own thing. I need you. God, we want your work in this place. The collection of called out ones, the ecclesia right here in New Boston called First Baptist, we want to be effective for you. We don't want to hold down the fort. We don't want to hang in until you come back. We want to be actively serving you, being the church that you've called us to be. We pray your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing this great old hymn? Without him, I could do nothing.